Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 5th, 2014. Once again, we will have... We, once again, we will be presenting Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies. This is the eighth segment in our presentation. It may run for many more. It may be quite a few during the course of the year. We're going to break it up with other presentations and, and other things that we've been working on, such as the 2C Mind series. That's far from over. We have a lot of segments of that to do yet. And, and um, later on this year... Possibly as early as this summer, I plan to present my classical records and German origins essays this year, which is long overdue. Once again, I have Sword Brethren here with me tonight to help me in our presentation of Martin Luther. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brian. Hello, yes. Hello, are you here? Yes. How are you doing? I'm all right. Give notes? Anything to say? Anything to say about the first seven segments of Martin Luther? Well, I, I just wonder what Martin Luther would say about the people who call themselves after his name today and just the general state of Christianity today. I mean, it seems that today there, there's not really an issue with calling it Judeo-Christianity, although it's more Judaism than Christianity. Well, well right, but that's the an, another, and there's several, that's another disadvantage to accepting the lie that the Jews are Israel. If you accept the lie that the Jews are Israel, then you concede to them certain authority in religious matters. And that's right. exactly well, what happened through the medieval period. By any objective standards, if the Jews were Israel, then God would have to be a pedophilic sex pervert unworthy of our following him. And we know, of course, God is not. So there's absolutely no way he would pick as his chosen people a race of pedophilic, pornographic, dope-peddling Bolsheviks. Well, 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 right. I mean, if the Jews are the image and likeness of God, we're in trouble. Well, we're Absolutely. I, I said because, if Abraham... I'm sorry, go on. If Abraham were a Jew, he wouldn't have been putting Isaac on the altar to get ready to sacrifice him. He'd have been putting him on the altar to get ready to sodomize him. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. There's, there's a, a, a million ways to speculate and just as many ways to prove that the people of the Old Testament certainly were not the people that we know as Jews today. Right. I mean, if Moses were a Jew, as we understand Jews today, it wouldn't have been Ten Commandments. It would have been 50,000 regulations and statutes covering you know, banking, finance, and compound interest. Well, right. They would have taxed the Canaanites to death. And possibly, by that means, been successful in getting rid of all of them. Okay, last week we had talked about the impact which Paul of Burgos, whom Luther calls Burgensis, had on Luther's thinking. When we got to part four, when we get, I'm sorry, to part four of On the Jews and Their Lives, which we may or may not do this evening, we will see Luther mention Burgensis yet again. He's already mentioned him a couple of times. In part four, Hill mentioned Burgensis in relation to how he translated a particular word. However, that's not all. Luther mentions Burgensis several times in this paper in parts five, six, seven, eight, twelve. He also mentions Lyra 
in parts 5, 6, 7, and 12. Lyra was a converso Jew who wrote a Bible commentary about 100 years before Bergensis, and Bergensis had taken Lyra's commentary, added to it, um, expounded on it, and, and made it twice fold the child of hell that Lyra did, I'm, I'm sure. Lyra mentions, I'm sorry, Luther mentions the two men together, and then he mentions Lyra by himself in context which show that Luther is intimately familiar with the various works of both men. He's deeply familiar with their writing. In part seven of On the Jews and Their Wise, Luther states in Bergensis that he was one of their very learned rabbis and who, through the grace of God, became a Christian. A very rare happening, which is much agitated by the fact that they curse us Christians so vilely in their synagogues, as Lyra also writes. So we have Jews telling on Jews. Does this pattern sound familiar? And converting to Christianity, leading men to believe that there could be good Jews. I mean, we see this all the time, all the time today. And he deduces from this, speaking about Bergensis, that they cannot be God's people. So Bergensis is a converso Jew, and because he's not a Jew anymore, I guess he is one of God's people. But those Jews, they're not. They can't be God's people. That's what Luther is telling us that Bergensis himself wrote. In that same part, Luther claims for Lyra and Bergensis to be truthful and honest men. It can safely be asserted, as we did last week, that these converso Jews must have had a tremendous impact on Luther's own thinking. He was deeply familiar with their writing, and, and I would be safe to, to um, I would feel safe to postulate that a lot of Luther's sophistic arguments and thinking concerning the Jews came directly from Lyra and Bergensis, especially since in part seven, Luther portrays Bergensis as already having written condemnations of the Jews. So quoting him throughout this, this essay, we see where Luther got a lot of his own Christian thinking from. He got it from these damned converso Jews. Right, that's why... The... I'm sorry. I was just saying that's the approach we've seen time and time again, where it's the, the brother Nathaniel spiel, that they, they, they get a little routine going where he's a converso, now he's vehemently attacking all of his um, racial kin, and he may be attacking them for racial reasons or religious reasons, but at the end of the day, the Brother Nathaniel crowd, they believe that a Jew can become a Christian and then can throw rocks at Jews for religious and cultural reasons and that the race issue doesn't matter. Right. Exactly. You know, the, um, <clears throat> there's another, another cleric or... or supposed scholar that Luther quotes later in his paper named, whom he calls Raymond, 
<laughs> and, and Matt Raymond, I, I'm trying to pin down his his um, ethnic background. Raymond was evidently a wealthy man from a wealthy family in Mallorca, Spain, in um, in the Balearic Islands, and and um, he made his name by writing about how the Muslims and and, um, and Jews should be forcibly converted to Christianity. And when that failed, he was writing that they should be converted by prayer and and, and persuasion. And it's um, he he made several missionary trips to North Africa to try to convert the Muslim noblemen over there to Christianity. It, it seems that um, Luther claims to these conversos. Burgos was a wealthy man. Luther calls him Burgensis, right? He was a wealthy man. He was a rabbinical so-called scholar, and, and um, he converted to, well, supposedly converted to Christianity. I think they really served in converting Christianity to Judaism. That's my personal opinion. But he supposedly converted to Christianity. He was a wealthy man, and he, was, he became a bishop rather easily. Why is it that we take our enemies, and, and when they give us a pretense of converting to our side, or when we take somebody that's different, Look at what the Republican Party does today in American politics. They take niggers, and, and of course everybody knows that niggers are never conservative, and, and when they claim to be conservative, it's a serious anomaly. Well, the Republicans love to take these niggers, put them on pedestals, and run them for all the top offices. Well, when, when the actual percentage of black voters in the Republican Party is infinitesimally small. So, so why do we do that? Why, why do we take the enemy and, and, or those who were traditionally opposed to us and, and when they claim to share our views, we put them right on a pedestal, we push them right to the top. It, it seems to happen as a pattern over and over and over again. And, and that's what it looks like to me that Jewish, so-called Jewish scholars, I, I hate to use that term too because it's an oxymoron, that when Jewish scholars come over to Christianity, that they're given all this awe and respect and reverence because supposedly they have, I, I guess, some special authority or knowledge in matters pertaining to Scripture and God. And, and that's all a, a, a lie. It, it's all a terrible misconception. So the people then, the people who are promoting Brother Nathaniel, what they're basically doing is they're helping facilitate for his infiltration into our faith. Well, well, let's look at Brother Nathaniel. I, I hate to even call the clown that. Let's look at Nathaniel Katner, I think his last name is. Here's a guy a Jew, you could look. I could see him from ten miles away and tell he's a Jew, and, and he dresses like a circus clown. He claims to be a Christian. He, he loves these um, exaggerated wardrobes, these giant crucifixes, which he 
um, display several loves in, in his outfit, and and, and he, he he clowns and pretends to be a Christian, and and he he basically pretends to be exposing Jews, and and what does it do? It, it, at the same time, he's making a fool out of Christianity. He, he's also leading Christians to believe that there could be good Jews. And that way, Christians have to have empathy for all Jews because some of them might be, quote-unquote, saved one day. Because there's good Jews. Just look at the Samuel Catman. It's the, the, the... the, the gimmick, the gag that he's playing has the opposite effect that then what Christians think it can do. He's not exposing Jews. He's protecting Jews because he leads Christians to believe that there may be good Jews so we can't, well, we can't um, ostracize all of them because some of them might get saved one day. In the meantime... 99.9% of all Jews are looting and pillaging and, and destroying Christian nations everywhere. This has been going on for a long time. And it's a charade. Paula Burgos may well have been an early Nathaniel Catman. I, I, I haven't read any of his own writing. I don't have to. I see what Luther learned from him, and that's nothing that I want to learn, as soon as we accept that the Jews are the Israelites of the Old Testament, we have to take a universalist position. And that's what Luther and all these people were forced into. They were forced into a universalist position because they accepted that the Jews were Israel, but they knew that salvation was not for Jews. So salvation necessarily had to be for anybody who claimed to accept Christ. And the genetic connection to the covenants of God are completely lost by necessity. They have to be. And we've witnessed Luther page after page after page arguing that the Jews couldn't, couldn't inherit the promises because of genetic means, simply because their behavior proves that they're not worthy of inheriting the promises. So he ended up arguing against Scripture time and time again. He's arguing against Scripture because the promises are certainly genetic, but those promises never belong to those Jews, never in the first place. And this is a good opportunity, and I think I read this early in this series, but I'd like to read it again. The following is a quotation from a book entitled Great Ages and Ideas of the Jewish People, which was published in 1956. And this, too, is a quote from a Jew. It's from a rabbi named Gerson Cohen. And he says... One other source for the self-conscious assertion of the election must be mentioned. For here, strangely enough, the Jews were the cause of their own embarrassment. The effectiveness of Jewish missionary activity, it is well known, immeasurably facilitated Christian preaching 
of the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, he's claiming that these apostles were Jews, which is not true because the Jews are not Israelites. He goes on to say, what is often glossed over is the claim of the Christian preachers to represent the true Israel, their contention that the new sect was the rightful heir to God's revelation to the patriarchs, Moses and the prophets. The Talmudic community, beginning with the second century, often found itself forced to defend its claim to the title of Israel. One of the deep sources of tension between Judaism and Christianity, one that never appeared in Jewish-Muslim relations, was the debate of two pretenders to the same title. For reasons of prudence, the Christian church later chose not to emphasize the question of the Israelite name. But the claim to succession is one which the church has never given up. The Jew, in turn, all the more aggressively affirmed his lineage and his election against all pretenders. Jacob was again at war with Esau over the primal birthright. Now, of course, the, the rabbi would claim that Jacob was Israel and, and the, that represented the Jews and, and these white Christians were, that these early Christians were Esau. Well, that's not true because the New Testament and the Old clearly demonstrate that these Jews are Esau. That information is basically corroborated over and over again in the histories of Josephus, Flavius Josephus, a historian they claim is their own. The, the, um, the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Jews, these Jews understood that there was a claim Upon, uh, on the part of Christians, that they were indeed the descendants of the Israelites. All one has to do is read the letters of Paul to understand that this Jew is correct. There certainly was such a claim. But Christians didn't understand the letters of Paul. So they ceded that claim to the Jews. The Jews don't deserve that claim. They don't deserve it at all, the New Testament spells out exactly why they don't deserve it, and history corroborates the New Testament. So Christians ceded that claim at an early time, and the Jews, ever since then, have had a um, have have had an advantage because Christians imagine those Jews to be the genetic people of the book. And that gives the Jews a, a, um, a special position in biblical scholarship, and, and their words ever since have carried gravitas or overbearing authority, when in fact they have no authority whatsoever. They have no biblical authority whatsoever. They're not that they're not authorities on Scripture at all. If they were, they would have been Christians. They've denied Christ. They've denied God. He who denies the Son has not the Father, period. That's how Christians should look at it, because that is how our Savior told us that Christians should look at it. Martin Luther, he, he didn't argue with the Jews on biblical grounds. He argued with the Jews on the ground supplied to him by Jews, by Lyra and Vergensis. 
if he'd have argued with the Jews on biblical grounds, he'd have been on much firmer soil. Do you have any comments? Well, if I recall, there was an American TV evangelist. They're all pretty much identical, and I, I forget which one in particular. Somebody asked him about the Jews, and he said that they have their own path. Well, of course, we know that they have their own path, but it leads straight to hell. Well, well, of course. There's only one path to God. It's through Christ, period. Christians should never recognize a separate path to God. That the, um, All the deniers and enemies of Christ clearly end up in the lake of fire. That the, the Messiah himself told us that nobody gets to the Father except through him. He only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a two-way gate. You don't see God coming out of the back end unless you go through Christ. You don't get into the gate to see God unless you're one of the lost sheep, the genetic descendants of the children of Israel who were dispersed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians by the, seventh, by the end of the 7th century B.C. Or, or the beginning of the 6th, and we can trace those people in history. It's not a mystery where they went. We know exactly where they went. The Bible tells us where they would go and tells us where they would be. Daniel and Isaiah. So these things, Christians should never entertain the arguments of Jews. Christ looked at the fig tree, which represented Jerusalem, and he said that there would be no more good fruit forever. Christians should never accept the persons of Jews, because the bad tree cannot produce good fruit, period. Not no feedback? <laughs> well, should I... um? challenge you and say, no, I believe that the, the bad tree can produce good fruit. There's nothing well, well, to say right. That's denial of Scripture. That's a denial of Scripture. And, so, and, so why do Christians imagine there could be good Jews? We should simply ostracize all of them. We should never accept their teaching. We should never accept their supposed authority. There's ways to learn what these Hebrew words mean what without Jews. So Essentially, then, if Christians want to support Jews and want to accept the personages of Jews and they believe that the bad tree can bring forth good fruit, then they should stop claiming to do so in the name of the Bible and just claim that they're doing so contrary to the Bible. They should be open and admit that. Because that's what it boils down to. They've adopted, a, they've adopted a political position that is contrary to their articulated religious beliefs. Absolutely, because they don't really understand their religious belief. If Martin Luther had understood, I don't know. I, I, I don't. He, he's still, in a lot of ways, an enigma to me, because the man was a translator of Scripture. And, and we discussed certain passages which he translated. And you translated a couple of those German passages for us. He, he should have known better. I can't explain why he didn't. It, it's... The, the, the accept that it was not yet time for Israel to awake. 
that there had to be a device. Satan was destined by God to, to have the ability to go out and do what Satan does to deceive all the nations. That time was coming 200 years after Martin Luther. Actually, Martin Luther and, and that time period before him, two centuries before him, when these um, devils like Lyra and Burgos infiltrated Christianity and were able to write their books and spread their influence across the, the, the Christian clergy, well, well, that enabled Satan to climb out of the pit. That, that enabled Satan to climb out of the pit, or they would have never been able to go out and deceive all the nations. I'm sorry, I lost my headphone jack for a second there. So, so, I mean, the word of God was fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. There was no avoiding it. We should learn from this today. It's important to learn from this today so that we can counter Satan and, and so that we can fight off, as Paul says, all of the fiery darts of, of the devil and defend ourselves and our you position. Know, that um, Zionist Christian organization, Christians United for Israel, the executive director is actually a Jew, David Brogue. Why not? Jews probably founded it. I don't know, but I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt if half of those prominent um, so-called television pastor evangelists, I wouldn't doubt if half of them weren't Jews. And this character <laughs> says that Jews have played an important role in shaping Western morality. That's why we have none. That's why we have none. What would you like to start with, Martin Luther? Learn from this, dear Christian, what you are doing. If you permit the blind Jews to mislead you, then the saying will truly apply. When a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Luke 6.39 you cannot learn anything from them except how to misunderstand the divine commandments and despite this, boast haughtily over against the Gentiles who really are much better before God than they, since they do not have such pride of holiness and yet keep far more of the law than these arrogant saints and damned blasphemers and liars. And I would say that it's not so much that the Jews are blind. They're not misleading Christians because the blind are leading the blind. They know exactly what's going on, and in fact, more often than not, they know more than most Christians. It's not blindness that you know leads the Jews to do what they're doing. I think it's a um, conscious undertaking. If a Jew can lead a Christian into a pit, so much the better. That's his point of view on it. Well, well, you know, I guess it's a matter of perspective, right? If you look at it from the point of the Jew... The Jew very often believes that his immorality is moral. I, I don't believe that, the, that, that a lot of Jews actually think that they're defending things like homosexuality and race mixing because they want to do the world harm. In their own corrupted minds, those things are fine. 
That, that's the way I look at it. I mean, I don't think it's a an overt conscious plot. They're just acting the way bastards should expect it to be act. I mean, what we could probably um, pull out evidence to support both sides, well, and perhaps in some time, in some cases, one side is true, and in other cases, it's the other way. So, you remember so, though, Maurice Samuels, the Jewish author who wrote the book "You Gentiles," he declared. On page 155, we Jews, we are the destroyers and will remain the destroyers. Nothing you can do will meet our demands and needs. We will forever destroy because we want a world of our own. And, and that is true, but many Jews believe that that's the moral position to, to um, bastardize all the races and, and form man in their image. So basically they think that the world should be remade in an image of miscegenation, sodomy, bestiality, pedophilia, perversion, and that the world should be, um, that life should be one nonstop drug-induced orgy. Well, well, basically, yes, but many Jews actually defend that from a moral viewpoint because that reflects their morality, which is immorality to us, of course it is. It, it's absolutely um, satanic evil, but to them, it's moral. Well, weren't to, we told to, that his race mixing is moral, and he really thinks he's doing God a favor. The Jew believes homosexuality is a moral choice between two consenting adults, when actually they should both be stoned. Right. Weren't we told woe unto them that put light for darkness, darkness for light, good for evil, and evil for good? Absolutely. So essentially, then, Jew, if the Jew believes that... Because that's the, the product of their conscience. So, in essence, then, we, we, we would be right to say that every Jew is terminally ill and there's only one cure. Well, well absolutely, because it's a, it's a, uh, it, it's a genetic disease. They're not a race. They're the multi-generational bearers of a genetic defect. It's congenital. It's congenital evil. That's what bastards are. It's good that Luther realizes, at least, that, that these Jews are blasphemers and liars. I can't imagine why he thinks that... Um, that, that sprinkling water on, on one of their foreheads and getting them to claim to believe Jesus it would, would change what the essence of the beast is. That, that's um, pretty foolish that, that Christian baptism could change the essence of a person who, who suddenly goes from a blasphemer and liar to a good, honest truth-teller like Lyra and Bergensis. So, but that's obviously what Lucifer believed could happen. So if we see a fox, can we sprinkle water on him and he's no longer a carnivore, now he's a clean animal and he's fit to guard the hen house? Well, well right. He might even be fit for their dinner table. Why not? Sprinkle some water on him and he, he's a chicken. Christians, you know, Christians should never tempt the words of the apostle who told us that Whoever transgresses, transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. It's real simple. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, 
he has both the Father and the Son. If they come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, or even greet him. And if you greet him, you are a partaker of his evil deeds. Well, we shouldn't accept Jews at all. We should have never accepted one Jew into our Christian... Uh, I mean, everything that's happened is written that would happen because God understands our weaknesses and knows the mistakes that we made, but we have to be able to profess our sins as a culture, our sins as, as a race and a nation, as well as individuals. So this is basically... A, a, an announcement of those sins. We should have never done these things. We should have never accepted one Jew into Christian communion anywhere. And especially not accept them as scholars and religious authorities. That's the perversion of Christianity. And, and here we saw perhaps one path by which that happened. All right. Back to Luther. Please. Therefore, be on your guard against the Jews, knowing that wherever they have their synagogues, nothing is found but a den of devils, in which sheer self-glory, conceit, lies, blasphemy, and defaming of God and men are practiced most maliciously, and vehementing his eyes. It, that's a rare word. It's, it's the word vehement as a verb, vehemeing. Vehemine. Yes. Vehemine his eyes on them. God's wrath has consigned them to the presumption that their boasting, their conceit, their slander of God, their cursing of all people are a true and great service rendered to God, all of which is very fitting and becoming to such noble blood of the fathers and circumcised saints. This they believe despite the fact that they know they are steeped in manifest vices mentally, just as the devils themselves do. Bat um. And where you see or hear a Jew teaching, remember that you are hearing nothing but a venomous basilisk who poisons and kills people merrily by fasten. And this appears to be a re reference to a serpent fastening itself to a victim. And with all this, they claim to be doing right. Be on your guard against them. But, well, how did he himself become a student of converso Jews? Well, which re reflects the fact that Martin Luther must have believed that Christian baptism what would take these serpents, that these liars be serpents and make them good people because he called Bergensis and Lyra both truthful and honest. I don't know how he could have called them that if he really compared their words to the gospel. I can only tell that from what I see reflected in Luther of their teachings. Luther failed to address the Jews on the words of Christ. If you want to argue against the Jews, there's no better position to take than those of Yahshua Christ himself, period. The words of Christ condemn the Jews and, and they're the words of God to Christians. So we recognizing that, how could we form better arguments? 
how could we have more understanding? How could our sophistic argument succeed in bringing Jews to good when, when Christ himself couldn't convert them and only denounce them and, and never really tried to convert many of them? I mean, there were Israelites among the Pharisees whom, whom he was preaching to, but the people that opposed him, he wasn't trying to convert them. He told them exactly who they were. So, so here we see, a, a dis, to me, it's a serious disconnect. If we want to um, argue against the Jews, not for the sake of the Jews, but for the sake of our Israelite brethren, which is what Christ did, that then we should use scriptural ground to stand on and not manufacture our own sophistic arguments, which I believe Luther was led astray in, and he was led astray in that by the influence he had from Paul of Burgos. And, and that's revealed by his own statements in his own writing. Here we're about to read the words, in the fourth place, and Luther bases an argument against the Jews on based on the possession of the land of Canaan, as if the Jews were actually Israel once again. His prior arguments are these. In the third place, at the beginning of part three, he initiated his argument based on the premise that it was the Jews who received the law of God at Sinai, and that wasn't true either. In the second place, at the beginning of part two of On the Jews and Their Lives, he conceived his arguments against the Jews because their prayer was blasphemous and shameful, boasting of their, their lineage and their circumcision and, and their better position and, and better piety. In the first place, where Luther argued against the Jews throughout part one, he did so on the basis that they could not be God's people simply because of their physical birth or their practice of circumcision. Now, now in some instances, Luther was right. Of course, one getting himself circumcised, that does not make him a child of God. But Luther accepted the fact that they were children of Israel and argued against the circumcision as proof that they could be the people of God the, the argument is ridiculous because the circumcision is not the covenant. The circumcision was only done as a sign of obedience to God. And Abraham had people in his house circumcised as a sign of obedience to God, even though they were not under the covenant. They were not part of that promise. His household servants being a perfect example they were that they were circumcised only so that Abraham could show that he was obedient to God, and they, being his household servants, his slaves, had no choice in the matter. So we see that Luther, Luther, we, we see his progression of arguments. Here he's arrived at arguing against them simply because they received the land of Canaan. And, and this is another, um, how, how do I put it, Cir circumlocutious way of 
manufacturing sophistic arguments against the Jews when Luther should have just read his New Testament and realized that the Jews are not the children of Israel. Well, when he's getting into this fourth place, talking about their possession of the land of Canaan, when have the Jews really ever been in possession of the land of Canaan? Well, well if, if we recognize the Jews as Edomites, they were never in possession of the land of Canaan because when they did possess it, it was only under the rule of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. So by themselves, they never possessed it. No. Right, so they, they were just dependencies, basically. Well, they were subject to the Persians, and then they were subject to the Greeks until about... One fifty six BC, but that really wasn't an Edomite nation at that time that broke free from the Greeks. When we understand the Jews are Edomites, the Edomites in Palestine were subject to the Persians. And then with the coming of Alexander, the Edomites in Palestine were subject to the Greeks. And then the then, when the Maccabees rose up and threw off the yoke of the Seleucids, the Edomites in Palestine became subject to the Maccabees in Jerusalem. That was the problem, because the Maccabees turned around and converted all the Edomites to Judaism. Now, by the time of Herod, the Romans had already taken Palestine, and it became a Roman territory. Herod was made a king, but he was really a subject king to Rome. From Herod, the Edomites were in control of the entire kingdom, but it was a subject kingdom to Rome. So the Edomites never really controlled Palestine at all by themselves. Because the, um, the Herodian Tetrarchy, they were subject to the rule of the Roman governor of the province. Right. They had a lot of autonomy under Herod, but it was still that they were still even when Herod was a king, he was still subject to the emperor. And served had had held his kingdom at the whim of the emperor. So it's complicated, but the Edomites were never really in control of Palestine under their own power and volition. It was always under the power of a greater empire, which was always a white empire. It was so never... A... Could we rightly say that Luther was ignorant of these historical facts? Well, well Luther was totally ignorant, obviously, of, of, the, of the ethnic differences amongst Edomites and Israelites in Judea, he seemed to be totally ignorant of the Judean absorption and conversion of all of these Edomites. And, and it's, it, it went on for several years under the, under the Maccabees, and many Edomites converted and became known as Judeans, along with the rest of the Judeans, and, and, and had full rights of citizenship 
and and religious practice in Judaism, by the time of Herod, those Edomites had, because of the, the power which Herod had, they had taken over the temple, they had taken over a lot of the civil offices, a lot of the bureaucracy, and, and, and fully invested themselves in Judaism. And, and, and Martin Luther, I, I mean, Paul of Tarsus was not ignorant of it. He explained it in, in Romans chapter 9 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He explained it there in rather enigmatic language, but he explained it nonetheless. Christ explained it in the Revelation. Luther seemed to be totally ignorant of it, accepted all these people as Israelites. Genetics seemed to mean nothing to Martin Luther, nothing at all. All right. Back to Luther, the fourth fourth place. Yes. In the fourth place, 34, they pride themselves tremendously on having received the land of Canaan, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple from God. God has often squashed such boasting and arrogance, especially through the king of Babylon, who led them away into captivity and destroyed everything. Just as the king of Assyria earlier had led all of Israel away and had laid everything low, finally they were exterminated and devastated by the Romans over 1,400 years ago. Well, here, the, the two are um, different concepts. Either it's either they're devastated or they're exterminated. If you're exterminated, that implies that you're totally and utterly gone, wiped out, which that can't have been the case. Right. Continuing on. Go ahead. Finish the paragraph. So that they might well perceive that God did not regard nor will regard their country, city, temple, priesthood, or principality, and view them on account of these as his own peculiar people. Yet their iron neck, as Isaiah calls it, 48.4, is not bent, nor is their brass forehead red with shame. They remain stone blind, obdurate, immovable, ever hoping that God will restore their homeland to them and give everything back to them. Well, Luther is not accounting for the hundreds of thousands of, of Israel who never returned to Jerusalem. Luther, he, he's combining all of these various um, invasions and, and destructions of Judea or, or the land of Israel over time. He's combining them all, imagining that they all happen to the same people. And... and, and the Assyrian conquests of Israel, the people weren't destroyed by the Assyrians and carted away because they were boastful and arrogant. That happened to the people because they were sinful and, and because they departed from God entirely, that they were pagans. They were not invested in the temple of Jerusalem at all. They had completely turned to paganism. So they were taken away by the Assyrians. Those people never returned to become Jews. Those people were never Jews. And and Luther totally discounts their existence as if they just disappeared, when in fact, history and scripture both tell us exactly where they went. And they certainly did not disappear. In fact, Luther was one of their descendants and didn't even know it. Now, now that, that blindness was decreed by God himself, and Luther can't be entirely blamed for that, but 
how is he combining the Assyrian and, and Babylonian deportations and, and, and bringing that together with these people that were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD? Now, now the Babylonian deportations, those people did return, but only 40,000 of them returned, 42,000, some small number in that area. Now, Luther doesn't seem to care to account for the many hundreds of thousands of Israelites who never returned to Jerusalem from the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities. And then he wants to imagine that the people in Jerusalem in 70 AD are indeed those same people, when in fact history proves that they're anything but. So, so he's just taking it for granted that certain things are so because the Jews claim them to be so. And, and if you concede history to the Jews, well, look at the trouble it has us in today. Continuing with Luther? Sure. Moses had informed them a great many times, first, that they were not occupying the land because their righteousness exceeded that of other heathen, for they were a stubborn, evil, disobedient people, and second, that they would soon be expelled from the land and perish if they did not keep God's commandments. And when God chose the city of Jerusalem, he added very clearly in the writings of all the prophets, that he would utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem, his seat and throne, if they would not keep his commandments. Furthermore, when Solomon had built the temple, had sacrificed and prayed to God, God said to him in 1 Kings 9.3, I have heard your prayer and your supplications. I have consecrated this house. But then he added shortly thereafter, But if you turn aside from following me and do not keep my commandments, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. With an utter disregard for this, they stood and still stand firm as a rock or as an inert stone image, insisting that God gave them country, city, and temple, and that therefore they have to be God's people or church. You know, Israel became a byword among all peoples when the Assyrians took them into captivity and settled them in the cities of the Medes and, and places in Persia and, and northern Syria and other places in Mesopotamia in the 8th century B.C. And Yahweh promised in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah that they would be gathered out of those places and brought to another land, and, and they could be followed in Scripture and in history. There were three clear stages of prophecy in Scripture. The first is the call of Abraham and the unconditional and immutable promises which God made to Abraham and his seed or offspring carried down through Jacob and into the 12 tribes. The second stage of prophecy is the tumultuous history of the relationship of God with Israel resulting in the period of their chastisement and punishment. That is the stage Luther is citing now, a warning of that stage. 
The third is the promised reconciliation of Israel to God in Christ, which is in all of the prophets over and over again, which in the end shows the fulfillment of the initial stage of prophecy, which is represented in the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and which proves the absolute truth to the word of God. Now, of course, those three stages can be refined even further, and Clifton M. Heiser's done that in a recent series on the marriage relationship of, of Yahweh God to Israel as a nation. But this story, this story is the story of the Bible in both testaments, and the story cannot be changed. Luther picks and chooses elements of the story to suit his arguments, but he shows a complete ignorance of the entire story overall, in spite of all those places where God unconditionally promises that he would forgive all of Israel's sin, that he would regather Israel to, to him in Christ in so many messianic prophecies. Luther is ignoring all that. He is basically... He's basically revealing to us a replacement theology, and that's what it's called today, replacement theology, that the Bible does not support at all. Not understanding all the stages of, of prophecy and their fulfillment in history, one can be deceived and look for other answers, so, such as replacement theology. So would it be fair to say, if replacement theology is valid, then God is a liar? Well, right. If, if replacement theology is valid, then God is a liar 10,000 times. And God cannot lie. But there, there is no replacement, because in, in order for there to be replacement, the Jews, as we know them today, would have been his chosen people back then, and would then no longer be his chosen people today, where the truth is they're not his chosen people, they weren't his chosen people back then, and they've never been his chosen people. Well, well, right. There is a valid replacement theology. It just doesn't work the way the mainstream churches think it works. What happened was Israel and Judah were taken out of the land and, and, and basically ended up, for the most part, in, in Europe and Eurasia and, and assorted other places in the north, while the, the Edomites and Canaanites moved in and, and eventually were able to pretend to be Israel and Judah. That's the real replacement theology. The devil replaced Israel. And these people that stand in with the name of Israel today, they're the devil, collectively. But that doesn't make God a liar, because he chose Israel however, 20 centuries ago, or, or I'm sorry, 40 centuries ago, and, and, and that hasn't changed. <coughs> Luther imagines that men do the choosing and not God. The Bible insists that God does the choosing and not men, which we see in this next paragraph. All right, back to Luther. Sure. 
They neither hear nor see that God gave them all of this that they might keep his commandments, that is, regard him as their God, and thus be his people and church. And and that's where, what we're, um, we just remarked, that God does the choosing, not man. Luther is imagining that men do the choosing. And that's not true. Christ says, I have, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. And there would have to be some sort of multi-personality, split personality disorder if God the Father chose the Jews and then Christ rejected them. That, that would show that God is at war with himself. What, like you pointed out last week, Christ told them, where I go, you cannot come. He, re he rejected them totally. He had nothing to do with them. He, he told them expressly that they did not come from the same place that he did. They were not born of God. They boast of their race and of their descent from the fathers. And, of course, Christ said that they are not Abraham's seed, so he denied them that. But well, they neither see nor pay attention to the fact that he chose their circumcision, I'm sorry, that he chose their race, that they should keep his commandments. They boast of their circumcision, but why they are circumcised, namely that they should keep God's commandments, counts for naught. They are quick to boast of their law, temple, worship, city, land, and government, but why they possess all of this, they disregard. Well, the possessor isn't necessarily the person that originally possessed it, right? I mean, just because you possess something now doesn't mean that you're the original legitimate holder of that object. And, and Luther just takes it for granted that the Jews are Israel because they were left holding it when the Romans came and destroyed it. Well, didn't he even tell them that the kingdom of heaven suffers from violence and the violent take it by force? And he told them that the kingdom will be taken from them and given to those bringing forth the fruits thereof. Yes, he did. So if I, fruits. if I gather together a conspiracy of people, we kill an heir and seize his inheritance, that doesn't make us a lawful, legitimate possessor of his inheritance. I mean, we've usurped his inheritance and we're in physical possession of it, but it doesn't make it right. And Luther did not understand the parable. That's pretty clear. He didn't understand those parables. Well, that is the entire... No, no parables. The parables are only expressing things that the prophets had already expressed. Malachi already expressed it. We'll get to that soon. Um, Ezekiel already expressed it when, when he portrayed the Edomites as having moved up into the land of Judah and Israel and taking it over in Ezekiel chapter 34. It's expressed in the prophets. What happened in, in the intertestamental period where it is explained in the prophets, it's corroborated historically by Flavius Josephus, but you should be able to read the King James Version of the Bible alone and, and, and be able to arrive at the conclusion that Christ was right that these people calling themselves Israel were indeed not true Israel. And, and we'll illustrate that soon.
in, in the next paragraph, I believe. Well, I just wanted to say about the um, the usurpation that that is essentially what has been playing out since the beginning of our people's existence, back way back in the garden even, that they want our inheritance and everything they've done in the last five, 6,000 years has been in the furtherance of their goal of destroying our people and seizing what is rightly ours. Namely, they want to establish their kingdom in this world. Luther didn't understand that the... the, the um the Edomite claim to the the temple, the worship, the city, the land, the government, the, the Bible, the scrolls, that, that's all a charade. The Jews hide behind that charade, and that enables them to operate, to masquerade as God's people while they operate as history's oldest crime ring. That's what they are. All right. The devil, with all his angels, has taken possession of this people so that they always exalt external things, their gifts, their deeds, their works, before God, excuse me, which is tantamount to offering God the empty shells without the kernels. These they expect God to esteem and by reason of them to accept them as his people and exalt and bless them above all Gentiles, but that he wants his laws observed and wants to be honored by them as God, this they do not want to consider. Thus the words of Moses are fulfilled when he says in Deuteronomy 32:21 that God will not regard them as his people since they do not regard him as their God. Hosea 1:9 expresses the same thought. Now, didn't Christ say, though, that not a single one would be snatched from his hands? Well, well absolutely. The, the, um... yeah, you know, Christ... Luther imagines that the devil, with all of his angels, has taken possession of the Jews, when in fact, the Jews are the devil and his angels. That the, um, Christ told them that they were of their father the devil. He didn't tell them that they were born of God and, and that they had been snatched away by the devil. He didn't tell them that they were children of God and somehow switched sides. He told them very flatly that their origin, that their father was not his father, that their origin, their very origin, was something other than his origin because their father was the devil. If one wants to understand the words of Christ and the reactions of the Judeans to those words in John chapter 8, first one must understand the prophecy of Malachi, which concerns those very words. John chapter 8, from verse 41, Christ tells them, You do the deeds of your father. And they said, Not your teacher, your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded and came forth from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? He's not asking them. He's going to answer it. Even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. 
he was a murderer from the beginning, meaning that these people had to be descendants of Cain and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Well, where the, where, where the people who opposed Christ in Judea had retorted that they had one father, even God, that they were not born of fornication, Malachi prophesied of those words in Malachi chapter 2. And Malachi tells us why those words are not true. He says in Malachi 2, 10 and 11, he, Malachi the prophet is also writing a rhetorical question here. Speaking of the people who deal treacherously in Jerusalem, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously. Malachi in verse 11 is giving us the explanation for the why things are the way they are in verse 10. Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. What did Judah do? He married a Canaanite woman. He had Canaanite children. Those Canaanite children never left Judah. They stayed in Judah right through to the end. They were certainly some of their descendants amongst these so-called Jews of the first century. Now we understand the Edomite absorption, and that's very historical. It, it's an absolute historical fact in the pages of Josephus. It's also mentioned by the Greek geographer Strabo, and in other historical sources that Edomites were living in Judea at the time. Strabo's Geography, Book 16, he mentions it several times. So, so we shouldn't, we, we, we really can't question that history. Malachi is the answer to understanding John chapter 8. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And Christ told these people, if God were your father, you would love me. Instead, you were of your father the devil. How were they of their father the devil? Because Judah profaned the holiness of Yahweh and married the daughter of a strange God. Malachi's a prophet. He's explaining the mystery of iniquity in Judah. If the Judeans hadn't absorbed the Canaanites and Edomites who dwelt all around Jerusalem in the days of the Maccabees, then we could say, well, perhaps this is spiritual. It's certainly not spiritual. It's genetic. And Christ was addressing Canaanites and Edomites. That's what Malachi is telling us in Malachi chapter 2. He's giving us the answer to the Jews' statement in John 8, 41, which Paul also verifies in Romans 
chapter 9. So all these things mesh together. Now I, um, Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 should be cross-referenced to John 8 41. Malachi chapter 2 verse 11 helps to explain John 8 44. I checked five Bibles for cross-references and none of them cross-reference John 8 41 to Malachi 2 10 even though it's practically the same exact statement and clarifies John chapter 8 without a doubt. Back to um, Luther. Yes. Indeed, if God had not allowed the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed and had them driven out of their country, but had permitted them to remain there, no one could have convinced them that they are not God's people, since they would still be in possession of temple, city, and country, regardless of how base, disobedient, and stubborn they were. They would not have believed it, even if it had snowed nothing but prophets daily, and even if a thousand Moseses had stood up and shouted, you are not God's people because you are disobedient and rebellious to God. Why, even today, they cannot refrain from their nonsensical, insane boasting that they are God's people, although they have been cast out, dispersed, and utterly rejected for almost 1,500 years. By virtue of their own merits, they still hope to return there again, but they have no such promise with which they could not console themselves other than what their false imagination smuggles into Scripture. Israel was never rejected. Israel was rejected, but Israel was promised to be reconciled. The Jews were never his people. He told them that in John chapter 10. There's two things going on here. Martin Luther is assuming that the interactions that God had with Israel in, in the prophets hundreds or, 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 yeah, many centuries before Christ are the same interactions with the same people that Christ had with the people in Israel at his time, and that's simply not, not so. Christ said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And he defined the sheep as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't define them as Gentiles. Christ told these people in Judea very explicitly they were not his sheep. And that was why they did not believe him. Luther would have that backwards too, I guess. Right, well, he did not say you do not believe me, therefore you are no longer my sheep, or therefore you are not my sheep. He said, you do not right. believe me because you are not my sheep. Exactly. They weren't his sheep in the first place. They couldn't hear the voice of their shepherd. They did the deeds of their father, who was not God. Right. Our apostle, St. Paul, was right when he said of them that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened, Romans 10.2. They claim to be God's people by reason of their deeds, works, and external show, and not because of sheer grace and mercy, as all prophets and all true children of God have to be. As was said, therefore, they are beyond counsel and help in the same way as our papists, bishops, monks, and priests together with their following who insist that they are God's people and church 
They believe that God should esteem them because they are baptized, because they have the name, and because they rule the roost. There they stand like a rock. If a hundred thousand apostles came along and said, you are not the church because of your behavior or your many doings and divine services, even though these were your best efforts, no, you must despair of all this and adhere simply and solely to the grace and mercy of Christ. If you fail to do this, you are the devil's whore or a school of knaves and not the church. They would wish to murder, burn at the stake, or banish such apostles as for believing them and abandoning their own devices. Of this there is no hope. It will not happen. And Luther didn't discern what Paul was doing or saying. In Paul's time, there were still some Israelites in Judea, some of the true remnant of Levi, Benjamin, and Judah. That was not the case for many centuries before Luther's time. In Paul's time, the Judeans hadn't yet, that there were Edomites, and there were Judah, and Benjamin, and Israelites, but they hadn't yet gone and mixed with all of these Arabs, and, and with the Turks, and, and all the other people, the Negroes, with all the other people that they mixed with, while they were basically ostracized from the Byzantine Empire. And they were ostracized from all these Christian nations. So the, the people calling themselves Jews in the time of Martin Luther, they were a quite different people genetically than the people of Judea at the time of Paul. At the time of Paul, there were still many true Israelites in Judea. Paul distinguished between the Edomites in Judea and the Israelites in Judea in Romans chapter 9 and explicitly told us that he was only concerned with the true Israelites in Judea. Martin Luther is not making the same distinction which Paul did. Not at all. He's ignoring the distinction which Paul made, which is not fair to Paul. Paul cared only for the true Israelites who were left in Judea. In Paul's time, there were some true Israelites left in Judea, and they were the subject of these words of Paul's in Romans chapter 10. It had nothing to do with Jews. It had everything to do with the Israelite remnant in Judea. The people that we know as Jews are descended from, solely from the people who continue to reject Christ, even through the destruction of Jerusalem, and then went out and race mixed with so many other nations. And that's who Martin Luther knew as Jews, and those people were not Israelites at all. Not one whit. So he's failing to see the distinctions that Paul made, and imagining that he's talking to the same Judeans that Paul was talking about. And it simply isn't true. All right. Back to Luther. Sure. Indeed, if God... Wait a minute. 
Did I get the wrong paragraph? Ugh. We're looking at the Turks follow the same pattern. It scrolled up somehow. The Turks follow the same pattern with their worship, as do all fanatics. Jews, Turks, Papists, Radicals abound everywhere. All of them claim to be the church and God's people in accord with their conceit and boast, regardless of the one true faith and the obedience of God's commandments through which alone people become and remain God's children. Even if they do not all pursue the same course, but one chooses this way, another that way, resulting in a variety of forms, they nonetheless all have the same intent and ultimate goal, namely, by means of their own deeds, they want to manage to become God's people, and thus they boast and brag that they are the ones whom God will esteem. They are the foxes of Samson, which are tied together tail to tail, but whose heads turn away in different directions. Judges 15.4. Although the the Turks and the Jews, I don't really think that the Turks care who has a claim to be God's people. The Turks are just a different branch of the Edomite Jewish family from Central Asia rather than, you know, um, Asia Minor. Well, well, right. A, a lot of people don't understand that the Edomites, once once they um, got their feet into Khazaria, they, they were able to convert the Khazars, of course, to Judaism. And once that happened, they were able to um, to, to intermarry with the Khazars, well, which they did ostensibly did in very large numbers. A lot of people like to think, oh, these Khazars don't have any Edomite blood at all. That's not true. Even though the Khazars, the, the noble classes amongst the Khazars were definitely what we would consider Aryan people. However, they were intermarrying with these Edomites for at least three or four hundred years, and, and, and almost exclusively, while they were in Khazaria, before they migrated in, in large numbers under the pressure of the Mongols and, and the other invading tribes, while they, before they migrated into what we know as the Ukraine and, and southern Russia today. So, so it, it's, I, I would say it's very safe to infer that nearly all Khazars at least have, do indeed have Edomite blood. Even if it's a very small amount, they have Edomite blood. I wouldn't discount it one bit. But at the end and, of the day, it doesn't matter because they're not us. Well, well, you know, originally the Khazars, a lot of them were us because those lands were heavily settled by the Scythians when, when the Khazar Empire was formed. And there were a lot of Scythians that didn't go west into Europe before the Khazar Empire was formed and, and before the Uyghurs and other tribes to the east had come west and, and, and well... well in some degrees overrun and, and, and in some ways mingled with the people in, in, in the Black and Caspian Sea region. The Turks are a mixed race, there's no doubt right, that they're the, um, East white mixture, and, and there is a heavy Edomite and Canaanite element among them also. Now, did you say the Uyghurs or the Bulgars? Well, well, I mentioned the Uyghurs, or, or U-I-G-H-U-R-S is the way it's spelled. The Proto-Turks. Yes, they're, they're basically Proto-Turks, and they came from further east in Asia, ostensibly. 
And the Bulgars are almost certainly related. And the Avars. So essentially, the people who are living in Bulgaria today who claim descent from the Bulgars, from which they get their name, they're basically just Turks, but they're, you know, um, 30 generations removed from the original proto-Turks. It seems to be. So they're basically Turks who have been whitened over 20, 30-plus generations, but they're still, you know, swarthy, and they don't look like Celts or Irishmen or Englishmen, or they don't look like anybody from Western or Central Europe. That seems to be, to an extent. I'm not, you know, the history in, in, of, of, of Eurasia in the medieval period, except for some Jewish documentation and, and very scant records that, that I know exist in, in German, it's very poorly documented. And, or, or at least I, I don't know where to start looking for, for a better understanding. I know there are also Greek records and Russian records, but they don't go back very far. They don't go back as far as people would like them to. And in fact, the Cyrillic, the, the Cyrillic alphabet that the Russians write in wasn't even devised until the 10th century. So, so there were certainly no written records amongst the Russians and, and the other Slavic tribes of the East before that. Not that I've ever heard of. So, so the, the history area is poorly documented, and, and if I'm not mistaken... Scholars often turn to Arab sources for a greater understanding, and and I don't think that they're very trustworthy either. Back to Luther. Please. But, as we noted earlier, that is beyond the comprehension of the Jews as well as of the Turks and Papists. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Thus the words of Isaiah 6.9 come true. Hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. For they do not know what they hear, see, say, or do, and yet they do not concede that they are blind and deaf. Well, well, John chapter 9, from verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into the world, that they which see not might see, and that they which might see, which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If ye were blind, you would have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remains because they thought they knew better, and they didn't. The, the, um, the profession of Luther here that, that, that people can choose Jesus and, and become children of God, basically, basically is what he's professing, that's salvation by works. And, and Luther, in other contexts, at other times, denied that salvation could be by works. But because he was a universalist, was led to the mistaken belief that anybody who accepted Jesus was saved, and and that's in spite of the entire message of the gospel. Only a child of 
the children of Israel whom Christ came for can be recognized as children of God if they submit to the obedience of God in Christ. That's what Christian sonship is. All of the children of Israel are children of God. Deuteronomy 14.1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Well, we don't have that position as sons unless we volunteer to the responsibility that it includes. And, and that's a very clear message in Scripture, because if you love Christ, you'll keep his commandments, and, and then you'll be recognized as his children. So you have to be an Israelite first, and then aspire to attain the sonship. If you're not an Israelite, and the sonship isn't the fact of being a son, it's you are a son, and you're being recognized and placed into that position. That's what huiothesia means, and that's the word very tra poorly translated as adoption in the King James Version. Huiothesia is the position, the rights and status of one who is already a son. You can't become a son by your own choice. You're either born one or you're not. You're born a son of God or you're not. You're born of heaven or you're born of the world, according to the Apostle John in his first epistle. So then there's essentially two categories, son, bastard, sheep, goat. Right. Sons, bastards, sheep, goats, wheat, tares. It, 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 it doesn't, however you want to label them, you're right. There's two categories. Over and over again through the scripture, there's two categories. You're a son or you're a bastard. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Why are you a child of the devil? Because you're a bastard. And, and, and the devil is the creator of bastards. And we're not going to sit around and say, well, you're 90% a son of God and only 10% a son of the devil, so you're, you're close enough. You know, you're, you're more um, son of God than you are son of devil, so you can come on in. A bastard shall not enter the house of the Lord, period, forever. Never going to happen. We should stop kidding ourselves by trying to gray the black and white word of God. We're trying to cre constantly create gray areas to squeeze in people that we think are okay. God makes the decision, and he's made it, and that decision is in Scripture. He wasn't kidding us when he said that a bastard shall not enter his congregation. So the lines are drawn. Thank you for joining me. I will be here, um, Yahweh willing. I have a long trip to the New York and, and, and back this week to face yet. Yahweh willing, I will be here next Thursday and ne next, I'm sorry, next Friday and Saturday, and I will be taking phone calls. I beckon participation. Whether um, we have questions or contentions, that's fine too. We should have contentions. And, and air those things out. So, open lines next Friday and Saturday here at Christagenia Internet Radio. The, sh the, the program 
the schedule two weeks from now will be left up in the air. I'm not sure what we're going to do on the Saturday program. I'll be thinking about it throughout the week. On the Friday program two weeks from now, it'll be Paul's Epistle to the Romans, Part 3, with all certainty, Yahweh permitting. Thank you for listening, and good night. Thank Praise you. Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. Good night. Yeah.